Christ is coming. He's coming to judge the earth. So is that good news or bad news? <laughs> Oftentimes when we think about the judgment of God, even as Christians, we're fearful. And that ought not to be. So the songs that we were singing this morning about God's presence, His grace, His coming, uh, you notice that they were, they were uh, joyful songs. And the news that God is coming to judge the earth is part of the good news of the grace of God. So I want to read to you this morning from Psalm 98. And as we read through it, wait for the last verse. So it says, Sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The Lord has made His salvation known and revealed His righteousness to the nations. He has remembered His love and His faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Burst into jubilant song with music. Make music to the Lord with the harp with the harp and the sound of singing, with trumpets and the blast of the ram's horn, shout for joy before the Lord, the King. Let the sea resound and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains and sing together for joy. Let them sing before the Lord. Why? Why all this great exuberance, this tremendous joy, this calling together of all creation, even the inanimate objects, uh, rivers and trees and mountains, bursting forth and singing praise and glory to God, calling the nations to join in. Why? For He comes to judge the earth. That's why they're rejoicing. That's why they're singing. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's a promise. It gives us hope gives us courage for the task before us. And so what it's talking about is that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is reigning. This is a, a tremendous psalm of worship and exuberant joy because God is judging the world in righteousness and the peoples with equity. It's the rule of Christ, the fulfillment, the restoration of all creation. That's why creation is called upon to burst forth in spontaneous anthem of joy, worship, and praise. So God comes to judge the world, and there's no fear or terror in this for those who know Him. Only jubilation. He it is who ushers in the peaceable kingdom. Now we talk a lot about this. Um, we read about it in Isaiah chapter 11. And we're getting ready to begin the Advent season starting next week. And Advent is a time of preparation to recall the coming of Christ and His birth. 
But it also is a time of preparation because he's promised to come again. And uh, when he first came into the earth, it was a very violent, dark, uh, ugly place, especially where he came. And we tend to forget that sometimes. And the world will not be a whole lot better when he returns. So it's in that context here that we have this, these promises about a peaceable kingdom from Isaiah chapter 11. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. It's a great hope, isn't it? But in order to get there, there has to be this coming in judgment, this cleansing, the purification, um, this bringing to fulfillment what God has begun that work within each one of us. And so there's no terror, only hope. In Psalm 96, it's another one of these um, psalms that goes along with Psalm 98. And in Psalm 96, it also starts off singing to the Lord a new song. And it talks uh, about Him and it talks about the families of the nations ascribing to the Lord glory and strength, worshiping before the Lord in the splendor of His holiness, trembling before Him the whole earth, and the nations saying, The Lord reigns, and He will judge the people with equity. And then he judged the world in righteousness and all the peoples with his truth. And so he comes, and again, Psalm 96 is talking about um, the heavens rejoicing, the seas, the fields, the trees of the forest singing for joy. You remember when Jesus rode into Jerusalem just before the crucifixion, the triumphal entry, we call it. And all the children were singing and praising and people were bringing the palm branches as symbols of peace and hope um, and laying them in his path. That many of the religious leaders of the day were offended by that. And they asked Jesus to tell the children to quit singing that way and quit crying out, glory to God in the highest. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, if these children stopped, the very stones of the earth would cry out. Well, when the Lord comes to judge the earth, all those inhibitions will be gone. And the stones will cry out freely and loudly. And we will be able, hopefully, to hear them and to participate with them. I think it's more than just poetry that Scriptures is talking about here. There are truths and reality of which we have no knowledge and no idea of what's going on. The book of Job, God speaks to Job and asks him where he was when the morning stars sang together at creation. And the astronomers, you know, they, they search for stars now. How do they search for them? Far beyond what you can see, they search for it with radio telescopes 
listening for the stars because they're all making noise. They're all making sound. And I don't know, sometimes I think about outer space. You think about all this vast distances involved between the planets and the stars and all of that. I mean, it's huge. Defiles imagination how far apart things are. And if we think that's dead, empty space, we are mistaken. There's a lot of stuff going on out there. We don't have eyes to see or ears to hear, but it's there nevertheless. And I think that there's an, a tremendous anthem of praise that's taking place. Oftentimes as people read the book of Revelation, if they read it at all, they're afraid um, because of all the death and the destruction that's there. That's part of what the psalmist is talking about, God coming to judge the earth. There's a cleansing, a, a purification taking place, a recreating of what was defiled and uh, defaced, making right what had been wrong. And as you read through the book of Revelation, underneath the background of all of that is a continuous anthem of praise. It's, it's in heaven all the time, continuous. It's there from beginning to end, and as you read through the book of, of Revelation, as, you're, as things are getting more drastic and more desperate here on the earth, and as we're heading more and more towards the final coming of, of Christ, there's a crescendo that takes place in the worship in heaven. In other words, it, there's an intensity. It increases, and it gets greater and louder and includes more and more and more. And that's back there behind all the things that are happening here on the earth. Because they know the conclusion. They know the direction that it's going. And so it's, a, it's this tremendous psalm of, psalm of praise because of the reigning Lord who judges the people with equity and righteousness and in his faithfulness. And so as you read through these psalms, the focus is on singing and rejoicing. We remember from Genesis chapter 3, that one of the things that took place when Adam and Eve sinned was they brought a curse onto the earth. The earth itself had been created perfect. It was beautiful. It was fruitful. It was alive. It was productive. It was a place of peace and security and beauty. And when people sinned, they brought a curse upon the earth. We uh, used to live in, in uh, Sand Hills in Seguin and outside of Seguin towards Nixon. And out there uh, where we lived, it was a place called Hickory Forest, and there were tons and tons of snakes, um, copperheads mostly, which are pretty docile, but they'll hurt you if they bite you. And I had three little girls, little ones. And so um, we built a house in the middle of the forest, and there were snakes everywhere. And so we um, taught them early to look for these poison snakes. And so we were sitting at the lunch table one day, and we, we would take different turns to pray. My youngest was Mary. She was just little, probably about the size of Texas, I guess. Her turn to pray. So she thanked God for the day and for the food and was thanking God for this and the food and all the other things. And, and in her prayer, she said, but why did you make snakes? We don't know, but you know, amen. <laughs> that was her prayer. <laughs> and uh, 
So we know that uh, a lot of that stuff now has come because of people's sin. It's part of the judgment, part of the curse that's on the earth. And all of creation was affected, corrupted by that. And so the animals that were at peace began killing each other. And people that were at peace with the animals after the flood began killing the animals. And instead of taking care and making the earth flourish, we began exploitation and manipulation. Those kinds of things which destroy and corrupt and kill. Because that's what was within us. In the New Testament, in the book of Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us, he speaks to all of this, and what he tells us is that all of creation is groaning as in travail of childbirth, waiting for the sons of God to be revealed, waiting for us to get our act right with God, because when people, all of us, get right with God, nature comes right. Because the correct, proper order is back in place. And so it says that the whole creation in, in verse 22, been groaning in pains. And verse 23, as Christians, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly because we also are waiting for our bodies and our spirits and souls to be completely cleansed and purged and made like Him. And so he says, this is our hope. He tells us the Holy Spirit also groans for us. God himself groaning because of our sin. We remember Jesus groaned on the cross, didn't he? And as he was being beaten and persecuted in all those different ways. And God himself is on our side. He's the one who sent Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. And so God himself takes up this great groaning and all of creation, all of nature itself, the rocks and the trees and the mountains and the streams and all the rest, the oceans and rivers are groaning, waiting for us to quit polluting, uh, quit destroying, quit abusing what God had freely, has freely given to us. And so the psalmist is looking forward. And what this does is that we see that at the crucifixion, creation responded to that. At the moment that Jesus died, veil of the temple from rent from top to bottom. The earth shook. Uh, there was darkness over the, over the sun. And all creation was responding to this. This is God the creator, and he's dying on the cross to redeem his fallen creation. And the earth itself is responding. The rocks split, the graves open, the dead come out alive on the day that Christ died. All of creation, all of nature affected and responding to the sacrifice that's been paid. Now the rest of creation is still waiting, waiting upon us. So this is the power of the resurrected Christ. So it's good news. There will be an accounting. And that's what the psalmist is, is letting us know. God is coming. He's coming to set things right. He's coming to judge the earth, to judge the people with righteousness and equity and justice. There will be an accounting. 
There's a lot of evil and wickedness in our world that we're all very much aware and have been made very much aware the last few weeks, right? With the, uh, with the killings and the, the terrorism and, and the destruction of life and limb and property and health um, for nothing. There, there will be an accounting. There is such a thing as justice and righteousness. All the people who have been voiceless, the helpless victims, will receive justice and vindication. All those who've been cheated or persecuted, all the martyrs, God himself steps in and makes things right. This means that suffering has a purpose and has a meaning if it's done for the right reasons. There is a goal. It has value. And it's something that is very precious in the eyes of the Lord. It gives us hope and it gives us direction. The hope is that we know that no matter how bad the suffering, no matter how bad the injustice that's taking place today, it is temporary. It will come to an end and it will come to a definite end. And righteousness will prevail. We live in a world that seems that injustice and iniquity is the is the one who holds all the power. But that's a lie. That's part of the deception. Because the truth is that God is on his throne and he will undertake on our behalf. And he continues to act creatively and redemptively even in this present world. And the guilty will be held accountable. So we look at the judgments that we see coming uh, we see even now taking place in some areas. And we know that that's um, just a small glimpse of what's coming. But for the Christian, there's hope. Isaiah 26, 9 says, When your judgments come upon the earth, the people of the wor- world learn righteousness. And with a sorrow in his heart, Psalm seventy-eight thirty-four says, whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. And we think of our own country, 9-11. All of a sudden, it's not against the law to pray anymore. Now it's a time of national prayer, seeking after God until the crisis passed. Then we'll take things back ourselves. So what's happening in France right now? Uh, people calling on God when the bombs are going off, but when the dust settles, back to the same uh, anti-Christian morality that they've, ever, that they've always had. When God's judgments are in the world, we learn what righteousness is. We seek God. He is our righteousness, our defense. Whenever God slows, kills us, then we, we turn to Him, eagerly turn to Him. So the salvation is always linked with judgment. Jesus died on the cross. He was taking your judgment and mine. And the sins of the whole world were being placed upon him. More than that, Jesus had told his disciples, now is the time of judgment on the prince of this world. And Jesus conquered him decisively and completely on the cross. So it does create hope, and it creates a promise. Back to Isaiah chapter 61, 
This is part of the promise um, passage that Jesus read in the synagogue in Nazareth at the beginning of his ministry. He only read half the verse, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord, Sovereign Lord, is upon him. And he lists all the positive things that he's doing. In verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So the year of God's favor and the day of vengeance are not exclusive. They go together. It's the writing. It's the justice. It's the setting things right. Apart from that, right and wrong has no meaning. Apart from that, good and evil has no meaning. So God is telling us the truth that there is a thing called righteousness and goodness and grace. And in chapter 63 of Isaiah, when God is looking for intercessors... Isaiah 63, who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? And the Messiah speaks, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. The same sentence. Redemption and vengeance. Death and life. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. What's the response? Verse 7, I will tell of the kindnesses of the Lord, the deeds for which he is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many good things he has done for the house of Israel, according to his compassion and many kindnesses. To us, we think these things are mutually excluded, but they aren't. They're the different sides of the same coin. And as we talk about the joy of the Lord, the wrath of God is the counterpart. God offers us grace freely Without money, without price, without cost, we don't deserve, we can't earn. It's just a gift that he offers. But if we turn our back on the the gift of grace, then we're faced with the wrath of God. That's the very New Testament. Uh, One passage, just to to make it clear. John chapter 3. We always read John 3, 16, rightly so. But we forget the end of the chapter, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Jesus took God's wrath for you and me. If we reject that, then we get God's wrath for ourselves. It's that simple. 
All of creation is waiting for that to take place. There will be an accounting. There will be a putting things right. There will be a hope and a promise for those who know him. And the promise is that we can have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is that when Jesus comes, again, Isaiah 11 and Isaiah chapter 9, he comes and rules as the Prince of Peace. And our hope is in Christ. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2, he's the one who talks about Christ being the atonement for our sins if we confess them to him. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are the children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that we don't see clearly here, none of us. We all see through a glass darkly. Uh, it's kind of a hazy thing. And it's not really clear what's, what's coming and exactly what's taking place. But in Christ... Because God is light and there is no darkness at all, things become clear. And as we draw closer to Him, the clearer things become. And we are going to be like Him. God is at work through the Holy Spirit transforming us more and more into His image. Making us more and more like Him. And we will see Him face to face. And when we do, we shall be like Him and we shall know Him even as He knows us completely and thoroughly. And so the hope and the promise is back in 1 John chapter 4. And here's why we can join in with the psalmist, with the rest of creation, in anticipation and expectation, without fear, with hope and understanding, with joy for the coming of the Lord in judgment. It's because of 1 John chapter 4. And we'll start with verse 13. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. I said this about three times now. I said it more than that as you read through the book. 
We are like him. And we have confidence, therefore, on the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. That's complete. We love because he first loved us. And so he's telling us very upfront here. If we understand what it means to be loved by God, and if we've received him into our hearts and lives, we don't have to worry about judgment anymore. Perfect love casts out that fear because fear has to do with punishment. That's what the cross is all about. The punishment for your sin and mine has been paid. And so when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And so that's why it's so important that the Holy Spirit works within us, transforming us, making us more and more like him increasingly day by day. So that when he does appear, as John says, we will be like him. He will see us. He will recognize us because we bear his image. That's what he created us for, right? Genesis chapter 1. God created us in his image and in his likeness. And we will bear the image of Christ. Let's pray. So Lord, we rejoice in that truth has a meaning and a purpose and a direction and a goal. And that in you, that goal is complete because you are the truth and you are righteousness and justice and at the same time, peace and wholeness. So as your children, we pray, Lord, as the days darken around us, that you would help the light of the life of Christ to shine brighter from deep within us. And it will shine forth in this world as we relate in the proper way to the people around us, forgiving and blessing and being the light that you called us to be. And we pray, Lord, that as we do that, that the coming joy of your great sacrifice of praise when you return to the earth will be ours as we walk through the difficult days ahead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All of this is because of the grace of God. And so when it talks about singing a new song, it's because the old songs aren't adequate. They can't express the new things that God is doing for us and in us and through us in this present evil world. Jesus in his prayer for the church in John 17, he, said, he says to the Father, I don't want you to take them out of the world. I want you to protect them from the evil one. But if we're out of the world, there is no witness. And God wants his witness here. And that's who we're called to be. So the example for us, of course, is Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. So in the judgment that's coming, in the difficult, dark times that are ahead, we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author the completer, the finisher of our faith, the one who gives it and died to make it powerful and real. 
for the joy set before him endured. And that joy is ours. Jesus said, I'm giving them my joy, that's you and me, a joy which the world doesn't understand, a joy which the world cannot give, and a, wor- a joy which the world cannot take away. Doesn't mean there's no sorrow, no grieving, no pain. It doesn't mean that. But it means that there is a, there is a rock, solid security and peace and even joy that keeps us going. For the joy set before him, he endured. And as we set our focus upon him, that works within us hope and strength, courage and endurance. That's perseverance, our old King James English, long-suffering. You suffer a long time. There are those in our midst who know about that. I don't know, I think about people like Richard Helsel. Man's been suffering a long time. And uh, others that are suffering in different kinds of ways. And God is there to strengthen, to, to encourage, to lift up. His presence is there. Whether you feel it or not, uh, the truth is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And it's the joy of the Lord, Nehemiah tells us, that's where our strength comes from. His presence in us, His peace his joy, his righteousness, his holiness, his life. He gives us that and it's available to us because of what Christ did for us. And we can never forget that our life is based on the death of Jesus Christ. So Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. It's to give us life. His life. After supper, he took the cup. And after he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, each of you drink of this cup. This cup is a new covenant in my blood. It's shed for you and for many for forgiveness of sins. And as we come before the Lord asking Him to cleanse us and forgive us, we need never forget that it's not just for us, that it's for the people that we struggle with or have a hard time with. That same forgiveness, that same mercy, that same grace is available to them. And maybe it's available to them through us, through our prayers. So the Lord invites us to come to participate in his life so that what John says is a reality in our life. In this world, in this world, we are like him. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would work that deep within our hearts, within our lives, within our relationships, as we keep our eyes focused upon you, the author and finisher of our faith. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, those...